Well, good morning and welcome to Eastlake Online. And for those of you who are here this morning, welcome. Good to see you all. It is 10 o'clock on Sunday morning on NFL kickoff weekend. So I'm guessing you're watching this on a delay like any true good Seahawks fan uh, would do. Might I recommend, if you're not already doing so, watching it on our new app that we just started and launched as a result of this pandemic deal. Um, it's a lot easier. Our team has worked tirelessly to make it as easy as possible to keep connected with Eastlake Online throughout this quarantine thing. And what better way than a commercial about us smartphone app to segue into a talk about Empire. We are on week two of a series called God and Gold, a series on Empire. Last week, we introduced a theme verse for our series that comes from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, as we mentioned, is kind of like a teacher's training manual for parents who are teaching their kids at home. I don't know if you know anything about anything like that, but um, for the Jewish people, they didn't have schools. uh, So uh, this is their way of kind of a common standard curriculum to, to raise their kids in the, the age, uh, with age-old wisdom of, uh, of all the people who've gone on before them. And right away in chapter one of Proverbs, it talks, and, and money is talked about over and over again, the acquisition of wealth and, and what that does to people and deterioration of character and all that kind of stuff. But specifically early on, Proverbs chapter one, verse 19 says that such are the paths, and paths is used a lot in Proverbs as this is patterns of life, this is how things, not one-time occurrences, but like this is just what happens when these things are a pattern and a repetition and a habit. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain, ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. It takes away the life of those who get it. Or another version, and Eugene Peterson talks about how uh, it does something to you. When you grasp for more than you have currently, um, you, be, you walk away less than you are. So that, that's this idea of empires. Empires, as we know it, um, try and go after ill-gotten gain. They, use their, they leverage their position and their, and their capital to be able to access things or get things cheaper. We want want better phones for cheaper prices. We want bigger trucks that haul more expensive things uh, for less invested per month than than, than we are are used to. And and we could talk about how on a macro scale this has worked uh, from a nationalism standpoint and and, uh, pick a nation and see how they've leveraged or been on the raw end of empire from other people perhaps. But like you're not interested in like a history lesson of how how empires, nation empires have kind of come about. You're interested in my own personal life, right? How does this affect me? and what does this mean uh, for me? So let's make this a little bit more personal. There is a way of living that can rob us and deceptively destroy things in us that can ruin relationships, that can ruin marriages. It can cause kids to grow up saying, I never wanna grow up and be like my mom or like my dad. It can absolutely destroy things. And that is taking that which we are not do this idea of empire becoming a little bit more personal, taking things uh, of which we are not due. We do it out of a sense of entitlement. We do it out of a sense of a false sense of necessity. I need to do this. Uh, We do this because we don't want to fall behind. We do this out of moralistic uh, relativism. We look around and be like, well, everybody else is cheating on their taxes. Why would I not do something similar in that way? And it is the effect of living and being subsumed by empire. It's it's a fact of being in sort of a, a culture that prizes empire, that lives off empire, that thrives off it, that actually resounds with it. And this isn't anti-American, as I mentioned before. I, I mean, like, this isn't an anti-American stance. It is, the ant- it is anti-empire, and to the extent that America leverages empire, it would be anti-that uh, sort of thing. But it's not like, you know, we're not standing full for the flag or not doing anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about today. Empire's no respecter of international borders. It's a way of living that robs us, of living in the way that Jesus talked about. And that's what we've said from the very beginning, is what this entire community has all been about. Whether you're watching online or, or in person or whatever, or you 
you've been a part of us for a month or a year or whatever, it's simply a community of people trying to figure out what living in the way that Jesus talked about might look like in 2020 or 2021 or moving forward. So anyways, last week, uh, if you missed it, we started off in Genesis. We walked through the kind of the first family and some of the stuff that kind of comes up with strife and the settling of things. And I said we'd pick up in Exodus, uh, which is where we're going to start off. Um, today. So the book of Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament. Exodus opens up on a scene. Um, Joseph's family, uh, Joseph ends in, in, in Genesis going into Egypt as kind of a, a high, uh, high person of, of leadership and, and high up in the government. Um, his family members and ancestors, though, it's, it's kind of fast forward a few years, they do that for us. Immigrants from the land that we know as Israel have endured 400 years of slavery at the hands of the current expression of empire, which is simply Egypt. Egypt is empire, the political juggernaut of the day ruled by a pharaoh who responded to the threat of a growing number of immigrants in his country by introducing forced labor, also known as slavery. And as the story goes, seven-day work weeks, no smoking breaks, no 401ks with a 3% match, just bricks and bricks and bricks and bricks and more bricks. And I want more bricks with less raw materials. I want more things. I want more things. Building the evergreen symbol. What were they doing with those bricks? They're building the evergreen symbol of empire, which is simply this. More storage units. <laughs> storage units to store all the stuff we can't seem to get rid of, but at one point we thought we couldn't live without. And so we bought it. And now we don't have a place to store it. And instead of selling it or giving it away or doing something different with it, we tuck it away until later when we will definitely sell it or get rid of it and give it away of some sort. So Egypt is an empire built on the backs of Israelite slave labor, brick by brick and day after day, until like in all good stories, there comes a conflict or a disruption. I mean, imagine a story with no, but then something happened, right? So in this sense, but then something happened happened. 400 years of slavery, brick by brick by brick, brick, but then something happened. And that something that happened shows up in the voice of the Israelite God, Yahweh, saying things or verbalizing things or being talked about as saying, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And the Hebrew word that they use for that, I've heard my people crying out, is sa'ak, and it means an expression of pain or an ouch. I have heard the se'ak of my people. I've heard it. I can't get over it. It's the sound uh, that we utter when we step on a goat head, at least when our kids are around. That's the sound. And it's not se'ak. That's close. We've said that when we've stepped on a goat head, but it's similar. It's, that, it's very, very close. It's in the same family, if you will. But Sayak is also a question, and involved in this question, this crying out, and, and perhaps we've even done this before, because we found ourselves in sort of a, a, a situation where we've been at the hands of suffering or whatever. And the question that goes along with Sayak is, where is justice, and did anybody else see that? Did anybody hear that, or am I all alone here? I cry out in frustration. I'm trying to manage kids at home with spouses who are working and schools and all of these, and I'm crying out saying, am I all alone here? Am I the only one struggling with this? Or it's an addiction thing, or it's a financial thing, and it's just a mess. Or we've all been in these spots where we're crying out. We're not even sure to whom, because we've not really been people like who pray or whatever. Or maybe we are people who pray, but it still feels like there's a disconnect there. Or we reach out to our mom who's supposed to care, but she just doesn't or whatever, and we just say, Suck. My life sucks right now. I don't know what I'm doing here. 
And what we see in Exodus is a God who hears the cries of his people, a God who responds to those. In the first two books of the Old Testament, we are introduced to a God, by the way, that we know very little about, but we do know. What we are treated to, because we're not treated to details. A lot of the things that we've come to know about what we, what we think about God comes through what Jesus has to say about him in the New Testament. But in this, it's almost like this voice out of 400 years of silence starts showing up and we, don't, we aren't given any parameters uh, of him. We don't even have the Ten Commandments yet or the law or the Deuteronomic law or any sort of priestly law or anything in, the, in those veins. All that we know about, all the only thing that we have to go off of in this is that he is a God who seems to hear the cries of his people. He hears the cries of the oppressed. He has an ear for the underdog. But it's not just that he hears it. The Exodus story is about his response to this. In the story, the oppression uh, in Egypt, the quotas are mentioned. Um, There's an assumption that they've always been in place, right? Um, Goals, measurables, expectations, which is fine. Every job. uh, Patrick Lencioni talks about one of the signs of a miserable job is that you don't have any sort of immeasurability. Like, I just don't even know if I'm winning. So for sure, these quotas are in place, as they should be in any sort of job. And yet, it's the uh, adjustment or the evolution of the goals. Uh, So it's not anti-goals. It's just that these goals have been kind of all of a sudden skewed a little bit in this direction. Now they've gotten out of hand. The numbers keep going up while the raw materials, again, as I said earlier, have gotten worse. And the unrealistic, if the unrealistic numbers aren't met, there's going to be hell to pay for. I mean, imagine uh, a Hebrew slave coming home to his family with a bandage on his arm and his daughter saying to him something like, what happened, dad? I wasn't able to meet the quota as, it, as what I was supposed to. I couldn't work fast enough or hard enough or there was a mistake or somebody gave it so my master beat me. Why, why did he beat you? Because if he doesn't beat me and we don't get the numbers up, then he's going to get beat by the person who's above him and up above him and above him and above him all the way up to this Pharaoh sort of expansion. Uh, this, this, it's, not just, it's not just here. It's, it's a system. It's an inundated broken system. There's, there's inequities all over the place in all of this. Um, it's a complex web of power, influence, industry, technology that exploits people for expansion of profit, uh, usually at the expense of the weak, or as the author of Proverbs would put it, ill-gotten gain, a system obsessed with ill-gotten gain. Egypt shows us how easily human nature bends toward using power to preserve privilege at the expense of the weak. Exodus shows us, the story of these people shows us that there is something in us that once we get into power, there is a natural tendency or a draw for the people who are in power to leverage anything to keep that power typically at the expense of the weak. Moses leads the Exodus away from Egypt. The, whole, the reason it's called Exodus is because it's a leaving of Egypt. It's a leaving of empire and it's a retraining on what it would mean to be human. So when they go into the desert and they go to Mount Sinai and they're given these 10 commandments and they're given these laws, all of these laws are, let me remind you what it means to be human because though you've been acting as if a human, I mean, you've been eating and sleeping and working and whatever, you've also been under the system of slavery, which is kind of like deranged your mind in this way. So let me teach you again what it means to be human in this way. This book is all about the march away from empire and what it might look like, excuse me, woo, to, to be anti-empire in the midst of kind of a world that is obsessed with empire. At Sinai, these new rules are established for living. The fourth commandment is given. So we know them as like the Ten Commandments. They sit on like little tablets or whatever. Um, and in those, they're all about, if we, if we had a, did a series on them or a talk on them, it would be all about retraining what it means to be human. But specifically, the fourth one I want to focus on, this idea of remembering the Sabbath to, and keeping it holy. 
one of the steps for them is, is if you're going to be my people, then here's what you're going to need to do. You're going to need to take one day per week, and you're not going to do any work on that day. And it's going to be a reminder to you that you are not what you produce, that your life is not defined by what you can look back and point to and say, see what I did? That is how valuable I am to this company, to myself, or to my marriage, or whatever. Here's your mandated reminder that you are not what you produce. Your significance comes from the God who rescued you and not the bricks that you produce. It's the God who rescued you that defines your value, not the bricks that you produce. Following the commandments are all sort of laws and commandments and whatever about how to live in this new way of doing things. And the Israelites at this point are then held to some higher standards. Not only are there recommendations, he goes into like there are some practical examples that are dived into. And they're, and they're so tedious. There's so many. If you've ever read through like Leviticus numbers or whatever, some of them are like, if this happens, you're like, well, I don't own a goat. So how does this apply to me, right? So I get it. But like listen to the, the, the method behind or the, the message or the why behind the, the parameters of this. Verse uh, 25 of chapter 22 of Exodus. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Now, this isn't to say that they didn't operate with interest or they didn't operate as business or that you should just always lend your money to anybody who asks and not expect anything in return. That's not what he's saying. He's saying those things are, there's an assumption that those things are gonna continue to take place. But there is a qualifier of, listen, if it happens to be somebody who's needy, then there's going to be some extra bonus things attached to this. It's not anti-business. It's just having a heart that goes along with business. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear for I am compassion. Again, what do we know about the God of the Old Testament? One of the only things that we know is that he hears the cry of his people. So when you uh, go to your friend who has almost nothing and they say, I need to borrow some money and you take a cloak as you would in a business, arrangement as kind of a hold hostage deal or as a ransom deal or as a you pay me back and then I'll give you your cloak back, right? This is a pawn shop sort of mentality. That's fine, but when you do it, have a heart enough to give it back to them at night so that they don't sleep out in the cold. For if you do that, I'll recognize that you have prioritized money and wealth over the needs of my people and therefore I will hear them cry, will hear them say, ah, out to me and I will come and I will rescue my people. This is essentially, I, I came up with this kind of phrase, this is a don't be a punk rule, right? And, and if, you, if you want to replace punk with some other word that is inappropriate for a Sunday morning stream, and you are free to do so. That was just the word I felt comfortable with because my kids are here this morning. So don't be a punk, right? Listen, I've called you to be a certain, like do life a certain way and be a certain type of good. And I understand the necessities of interest in business and all of that, but like do it with the heart a little bit, all right? Like don't let empire consume your mind so much that you can justify some really atrocious activity on people who are suffering because I'm telling you, I will hear their cries and I will rescue my people in this way. And as obvious as this feels right now, to them, I'm sure it felt semi-obvious, right? As it does occasionally to us if we've ever come out of something. We've been, we grew up poor. We grew up this, that, and the other. Hand to mouth, our parents never had much. And all of a sudden, we kind of have, 
I, I think a lot of my friends at this stage in life, if they're honest with themselves, look at them and, and say, I, I'm further ahead than my parents ever were at my stage. And I'm sure my parents probably said that about my grandparents, knowing, that, knowing my grandparents and their way of life, that was probably true for them. And so we, you kind of have come from, uh, for a lot of people, not everybody, but have come from a scenario where you didn't have much and now you have some. And, and you, you think to yourself, I'll never... And, you, and you've been around like the, you grew up with a friend who had all of the stuff, right? All the cool Nikes and all the cool, you know, video games that came out. He had the N64 as soon as it was available or the, the PS4 as soon as it was available, whatever, right? And you, and you thought to yourself, there's an attitude that comes with that and that I'll never have that. And I'll raise my kids a certain way to always be like, I'm a, we're appreciative of it. We're smart with it, but we're not going to be, we're not going to be like that, right? We're not going to, we're not going to be destitute. We're going to be smart with what we do but we're also we're going to beware of the attitudes of the uh, entitled, right? Now, that is the goal of every parent, to raise a non-entitled kid. Um, and the problem is, as obvious as it feels right now, there will become a time when it won't feel quite so obvious. There will be all kinds of variables that we will use that you could throw in there to kind of justify really poor behavior. Punk behavior, don't be a punk, right? And, and, and God is trying to warn them of this. So then the question then becomes, well, how did they do Right? And then the question, if you could fast forward your life and be like, I feel like I'm doing really good raising a non-entitled kid, right? Well, let's see it when they're 18, when they're 24, whatever. And we can't, and we, we get one shot at life, so it's going to be a little bit late to the game to see how we did. But what I, what, 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 the bonus for us is we get a chance to see as a, as a people group, just flip forward a few books, we get to see how these people responded. People who were engaged, the only thing they knew was 400 years of slavery, and then they get pulled out of this. You would think that they'd be a little bit more generous towards kind of people in similar situations or a little bit more, we understand where you're coming from to the poor and the broken and the, the needy in this way. Generations later, these wandering slaves have settled into the land they were promised. The great King David secures the borders and expands the empire. He literally puts Israel's name on the proverbial map of the world. His son Solomon eventually comes to power and his wisdom, his wealth, and his dastardly good looks. I, I'm reading into it, but he had plenty of wives, so I'm assuming that happens begins to gain a global reputation. The queen of Sheba pays a visit and is so impressed she starts a cat food empire. It's really, they got so much going on in this way. First Kings chapter nine, verse 15 says this about Solomon and the activities in this Jerusalem that is now on the outskirts of becoming empire. Here's the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the terraces, and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. This is, this is for, you know what forced labor is? Slavery, right? What has he done? He's conscripted them into this. I did not pay them. I forced them into this. I did a draft. Congratulations. You win. You're working for me. We're building stuff now. And when I say we're building it, I mean you're building it. I'm going to sit on the patio and eat grapes, right? This is the forced labor. And what is he building? A temple, the Lord's temple. What, what is happening in this way? So it's, it's an, an, it, he's building the Lord's temple, commemorating a God who set slaves free. Using what? Slaves. To summarize for maybe those in the back or those who have two screens on and the Seahawks are currently winning. I have no idea. I'm just saying that. Solomon is building a temple for the God who sets slaves free using slaves. The oppressed have become the oppressors. How are they doing? Not great, guys. Not great, Bob. The descendants of people who once longed for freedom from Egypt are not building 
uh, their own thing. They're building just another Egypt. And it's not just a temple. Here's the account of them doing this. And, they, and it says this, they, they, they build the temple, which is fine. His own palace, right? Of course, got, everybody's got to live somewhere, right? The terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazer, Megiddo, and Gezer. Three specific locations. Maybe not super familiar to you because you you're not like super up on the geography of Israel. Um, but this is important. What are Hazer, Megiddo, and Gezer? They're military bases. Uh, Megiddo, specifically, is in a valley located in northern Israel. It's the valley where Africa, Europe, and Asia meet. You would say it's probably a very strategic location, or in biblical language, specifically revolution, or revolution, revelation, a symbolic location as well. This would be the place where the worlds meet. The nations uh, all meet up here. Megiddo is where we get the English word Armageddon. This is, he's building massive, he's using his massive resources and his wealth to build military bases to protect his massive resources and wealth. (laughs) The slaves have become now the empire. Preservation has become paramount. And later in the text, we're we're told this, that Solomon accumulated a gross amount of chariots and horses in chapter 10, verse 26. It says, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which you're like, I don't even know if that's a lot, but it it was in that time, uh, which he kept in the chariot cities. He had cities that were based on this and also with him in Jerusalem because you don't want to be too far away from that. And then just a few verses later, they imported a chariot from Egypt. Now they're importing raw, or not raw, they're importing war resources from the empire that they left for 600 shekels of silver and a whore. And I think the author of Kings is including this to try and highlight the ridiculous nature of this, right? They know that this is insane that this has happened like this. And a horse for 150, they also exported them. They're not only in the import business, they are now also in the export business. They are importers and exporters of weapons of mass destruction. They are arms dealers. They are Middle Eastern ancient arms dealers at this point for the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans in this way. Jerusalem is the new Egypt. Solomon is now the new Pharaoh. And when he called Abram, when God called Abram looking for a body, flesh and blood to show the world the proper marriage of the divine and the human, um, he had none of this in mind for sure. What happens when your body looks nothing like you? What happens when your people become the embodiment of everything you are against? What happens when you rescued them from something like this and then they flip it and a few years later, a few generations later, they are the ones now leading the charge in this way. The Hebrew scriptures have a very simple and very direct message when it comes to this. And this is the point of this entire series. God hears the cries and the distress of the oppressed. He always hears the cry of the oppressed. He cares about human suffering and the conditions that cause it. He's searching for a community of people to care for the things that he cares about. He gives power and blessing so that justice and righteousness will, as Amos describes it, flow like a a water, a running water, a running stream that is constantly refilling itself. These things will be upheld for those who are denied them. And to forget this, to fail to listen to the cry, to preserve prosperity at the expense of the powerless, when preservation becomes paramount is to miss what God had in mind, which is what leads us to this quote to finish us off today. At the height of their power, Israel misconstrued God's blessing as favoritism and entitlement. They became indifferent to God and to their priestly calling to bring liberation to others. And there's a word for this, a word for what happens when you still have the power and the wealth and the influence, and yet in some profound way, you've blown it 
because you've forgotten why you were given it in the first place. The word is exile. From Exodus to now exile. Exile is when you forget your story. Perhaps we've all kind of done that a little bit in our own scenarios, and our own things. We've always said, we'll never be like that, we'll never be like that, we'll never be like that. And if we have actually took inventory of our attitudes and our behaviors and how we treat our checking account, our 401k, and all of these things that provide this sense of security for us or a sense of value or all of the bricks that we build that we would point to at life and be like, the reason I can have value is because of this business that I built, this thing that I did, this whatever. And, and, and we would say, we, you know, we want to keep it healthy and we want, you know, we want to be able to provide for our family and and, and God's not anti-business, he's not whatever, but there is a sense in which he's, there is a very direct sense in which he's anti-imperial. When preservation of that becomes more, when our value is too sunk into all of these things, when we point to bricks and be like, the reason I have value is because of the bricks that I built instead of the God who rescued us from that. We have forgotten our part of the story. So may we be the type of people who don't forget our version, our part of the story, our involvement in this thing. May we continually recognize that we are, we are, have been rescued. <laughs> we are a people who have been rescued, who are broken, broken pieces held together by grace that doesn't look at other broken pieces in the world and say, your fault, your own decisions, your own thing. Like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? To do that is to really just, again, forget our story and then to lead into what's in our future then, according to a scripture of a God who continually hears the oppressed cry of his people. The future is then exile. And what does that look like? What does that mean for us? For them, it meant going into Babylon. But for us, what does that mean? Uh, a loss of a sense of awareness of ourself. We become blind to our own brokenness. We are, we are acting a certain way. Everybody else can see it and know it about us and the pride and the, the stuff that ensues in us and the, the, the way too much tied to things or something like that. And we just don't see it because we're just ignorant of our own shortcomings. That, I would say, is exile. We find ourselves in exile.